0: Would you open up in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? We're steadily marching our way through 1 Peter, hearing what he has to say to us in our church. Today, uh, we continue. This is really a continuation of what um, he was saying last week. You'll notice the beginning of verse 17. There's this big word, for, And um, they're all connected. In fact, this is... um, the way that Peter originally wrote this, this is all one long sentence. Um, And so it's all connected. So keep that in mind, we're building off of this. But today especially, um, this is what I think is maybe one of, if not the most challenging passage in the New Testament to understand. Uh, Peter uses words here that are not used anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, Peter makes some cryptic references to things in the past, and Peter has this very hard saying where he tells us that baptism saves us, and that's that's a difficult thing for us to get our heads around, and we're challenged by this passage because it runs afoul of, of the way that we normally think about things, but this is the word of God, and we want to conform our hearts, we want to conform our minds to what God says, and not what we would like him to say. So we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do that today, and then we'll go to the text. Holy Spirit, would you fill us this morning with your presence? Fill our hearts, fill our minds, fill our eyes and our ears, and sanctify us to hear your word, to be conformed to it, to be changed by it. We ask all this in the name of Jesus who died for us. Amen. Hear God's word from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. And God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God. For a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God stands forever. Amen. Now, I want you, I want you to imagine a, a silly situation for a minute. If I came up to you before church and I said, listen, I've got a $10 bill with your name on it. The way that you get that $10 bill is you've got to meet me in the Fellowship Hall kitchen after church. If you meet me over there, I'll give you that $10 bill. Now, if you want $10, you're going to go to the Fellowship Hall. But what if, after church, I I wait and you never show up, and then I I decide, well, I'm going to go outside and start looking around. And where you're actually looking is, is in the cemetery. You're looking under benches and things, trying to find your $10. What would I say to you if that was the case? You're looking in the wrong place. I promised to give you $10 if you met me in the fellowship hall, but you're, you're looking for $10 in other places. I made a promise that I would meet you and give you a gift, but you have scorned my promise. Now, is it possible that you'll find $10 in the cemetery? Yes, it's possible. But, but why would you go looking somewhere else Well, what you're looking for is promised to be in a certain place at a certain time. Now, that's kind of a goofy example, but I hear this all the time with how people deal with God's promises. I I can't tell you how many men have said to me, you know, I can find God just fine in a deer stand or a duck blind. Now, that may very well be true. God, God may meet you there, and he may change your heart there. And our culture just kind of takes that for granted, that God is, is just going to show up wherever we, we want him to show up. But listen to what God says. This is Exodus 20, 24. This is right after the Ten Commandments. God says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. In every place where I cause my name to remember be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Everyone wants a blessing, everyone wants hope, but our our natural inclination, our sinful inclination, is to look for those things everywhere but where they're actually promised to be. In fact, what we're implicitly saying when we do that is that either we don't believe God or that we're not even really interested in him at all. But God has given us promises, and he delivers those promises to us in the places where he causes his name to be remembered. Jesus Christ seals the gospel promise for us and delivers the promise to us in word and sacrament. Jesus Christ seals the promise for us and delivers the promise to us in word and sacrament. So today we're going to consider those two things from 1 Peter. First, we're going to look at what this promise sealed for us actually is. And second, we will consider the ways in which God has promised to deliver That same promise to us. So first, the gospel promise is sealed for us. Look in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So once again, Peter begins uh, this section with the word for. So what we're about to look at right now is directly connected to what has gone before. So let's, let's refresh on that a little bit. Throughout chapters two and three, you've gotten instructions to various groups of people about how to behave under authority. Two weeks ago, we talked about defending the faith against revilers. In all of those things, what Peter encourages is purity of heart and mind. So, verse 17 is a summary of all this. He says it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? Well, there's another four in verse 18. And Peter gives us three things promised by the suffering of Christ. First, the suffering of Christ pays for our sins. Peter tells us that this suffering is once for all. What does that have to do with verse 17? Well, if Christ has already suffered for our sins, why would we continue to suffer unnecessarily? When we suffer for doing evil, that suffering is just extra. It's just additional. It's unnecessary. Justice has already been satisfied on the cross. In other words, Jesus has taken on the punishment for our sin. He's atoned for it. But why? That leads to our second reason here. The suffering of Christ reconciles us to God. God is holy and just and perfect, but we are sinners. We cannot come to God on our own because we deserve punishment for our sins. But because Christ bears that punishment, he is able, as 1 Peter says, he is able to bring us to God. Now, notice that we're not coming on our own. We're not coming of our own volition. Instead, Jesus brings us to God. And sometimes, you may have experienced this, sometimes he brings you kicking and screaming. Naturally, my, my temptation, your temptation, is always returning away from God. But as Jesus continually drags us back, brings us into the healing presence of God, we are transformed more and more into His image. And the third promise is that the suffering of Christ resurrects us in the spirit. Jesus was made alive in the spirit after his suffering in the flesh, and we are made. Beneficiaries of that resurrection. We are joined with him. God is the source of life. So, Jesus, in the power of the resurrection, brings dead people into the presence of God to be made new. So, what is Peter just outlined here in verse 18? It's, it's just the gospel. We are sinners, but Christ suffered for our sins. And since Christ suffered for our sins, he is able to bring us to God in whose presence we are revived with Christ. That's the promise. That's the promise of the gospel that is sealed and secured in Christ. Now for some of you, that whole idea might be new. Maybe you've never really reckoned with the gospel promises. And if that's you, your call today is to believe those promises. If you will put your trust in Christ's redemption, then you too will be brought before God and given new life. If you have any questions about that, we can talk about that more. But for others, you've heard this story before. You've received these promises at some point. And the temptation is to think that now that you've received those, that you're done. You've got it all covered, you check checked the box and everything. But I'll remind you that Peter's intended audience, he's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. To a faithful church. You see, even after we have first received and believed these promises, we still turn away. We still live in the flesh. We're still tempted. And we still succumb to those things. We suffer for evil instead of doing good. Our sinful nature, nature despises the new life that's promised in the gospel because our sinful nature is actually killed and, and cast out by this new life. We need to be changed. And that doesn't happen one time that doesn't happen overnight God as we continue to come before him as he continues to bless us bless us he continues to change and sanctify and make us new and mold us into his image so christian continually trust in his promises the promise is not once and done the promise is once for all for every moment of your life keep casting your sins on jesus Pray that He will continue to bring you into God's presence nearer and nearer, and pray that He will continue to revive your dead heart. The gospel promise is sealed for us in Jesus Christ. Now you may be asking this question, though, how? If Jesus brings us into the presence of God, how does He do that? If I want that, what, where do I go? Let's brings us to our second point. The gospel promise is delivered to us through word and sacrament. If you've been with me um, in our Wednesday night Bible study, this will be kind of a review for you. We've been talking about this. But listen to what the Shorter Catechism says in question 88. It says, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer, the the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word sacraments and prayer all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation now let's let's meditate on this for a second we all affirm I affirm justification by faith alone what do we mean by that? what we mean is that all God requires of you the only thing you have to do is trust in the promises of the gospel if I want salvation I simply cling to Christ and the, the work that he's done But it's also true that we can't trust what we don't know. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? We we need to receive these promises somehow. So here's the situation. Jesus has purchased redemption for us, but that redemption actually has to be offered to us in time. And the way that that is ordinarily done It's through word and sacrament. The catechism also mentions prayer, and we can talk about that another time. But 1 Peter is talking about word and sacrament. Importantly, we need to understand these are not things that we do. Rather, they are things that are done to us. Word and sacrament, and specifically today, preaching and baptism, are things that happen to us. They're not works done by us. We also need to understand that God is not constrained by these things. He can work outside of them. But in the ordinary course of things, word and sacrament are how God reveals his promise to us. So once again, remember Exodus 20, 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God has caused his name to be remembered in his word and in the sacraments. So let's turn to each of those. First, the gospel promise is delivered to us through the word. Look at verse 19. "Jesus in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now now we get to the hard part here. Uh, this is a really difficult passage to understand, and there, there are several views on what exactly Peter is talking about in verse 19. Who are these spirits in prison? How did Christ go to them? Well, there's basically two different ways to understand this, although each of those ways has several nuances that you can uh, attach to it. But first, it is possible that Peter means that Jesus Christ literally preached in the days of Noah. That maybe through Noah himself or uh, in some sort of Christophany where he he pre-incarnate Christ, uh, he goes and preaches to these spirits, um, that, that that's what that's talking about. Another possibility is that it's referring to Jesus' descent into hell, descent into the place of the dead after his crucifixion. Now, personally, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I take the second view there. And there are a variety of reasons for that. I'd be happy to discuss those with you if you'd like. But either way, I think we can understand the main point of the passage. The the main point of the passage doesn't shift um, whichever view you take. Because Peter seems less concerned with those logistical details and more concerned about the preaching of the gospel. What does Christ's preaching of the gospel look like? Well, first, Jesus preaches in the Spirit. Remember, whatever view you take on this passage, Jesus is not physically present in preaching. Instead, he is present through the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, the content of his proclamation, the content of his preaching, are these same gospel promises that Peter just outlined in verse 18. That our sins are paid for. That he will bring us to Christ. That we can be made alive again in the presence of God. And third, Jesus Christ preaches while the Father waits patiently. His preaching is a sign that the Father is withholding judgment on the world. The same is true of preaching today. Preaching is one way that Christ makes himself present with us. It's one way that Christ offers to us his gospel promises. It's one way that the Father's patience for us is demonstrated. It's what we call a means of grace. Now, you know, I haven't been here very long, but you probably already know that I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. And by the way, you're sinners too. We're all sinners. I get lost and I've, in my notes and things. I don't say the right things sometimes. Maybe for you, your mind is wandering. Your ESPN app is dinging for the football game. In other words, it's rare, rare, if not impossible, to get this thing that we're doing right now exactly right. But I'll tell you that I've noticed the Sundays where I really struggle getting a sermon together. The Sundays where the kids are screaming the loudest, they're actually very quiet today. The kids where the, where the kids are screaming the loudest, the Sundays where the rain and the weather scares off the most people. Because God has a sense of humor in these things, those Sundays are the days where the most people come up to me and, and, and say that was deeply impactful. And most of the time, the thing they say that was deeply impactful was something that I'd never actually said. Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is working through this event that we're participating in. We are just vessels for what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. Remember, in every place where I cause my name to be, get, to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. When we're faithful and gathering under God's word on the Lord's day, the day with his name on it, he promises to bless us. So what do we do? Well, we remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We come to the place where God has actually promised to bless us. And we hear him make even more promises to us. We come to the place where Christ is present. When two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. Christ is present here. Here. We come to the place where his voice can be heard. We prepare ourselves in body, in heart, and in mind to receive the word. And we rely on the Holy Spirit in which Christ is preaching to make his will known to us, to change us, and to sanctify us. The promises are delivered to us through word. And second, the promises are delivered to us through word and sacrament. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that is the the ark, the flood. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. through The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So now we come to this really difficult phrase. And we have to reckon with it somehow. We believe the Bible is inspired. We believe the Bible is inerrant. And so we can't pretend that this passage doesn't exist. And so too many times, I see people, even preachers who are otherwise great expositors of the Bible, read this passage, close their Bibles, put their Bibles to the side, and say, well, you know, baptism doesn't really save you. There's a qualification of what this passage says. But that won't do. Church, you should never be ashamed of anything the Bible says. There's nothing that should embarrass you in the Bible. It's the word of God. It's given for our benefit. And so if if we're going to honor the Bible and honor the one who gave it to us, we need to follow it where it goes and not be afraid to say what it says. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? What does Peter mean here? Well, to begin, uh, let's talk about the nature of sacraments. Sacrament, when we use that term, we're talking about something with two parts. A sign and a thing signified. So think about this. If I write you a check, let's say I owe you some money and I give you a check, have I paid you? Yes. But is the check money? No. A check is just a promise of money, it's a note that says, if you take this to the bank, you will get your money. And so there's the sign, the check which signifies the thing, money. Now, when it comes to baptism, how does this work? Well, baptism consists of a sign and a thing. The sign is water. And the thing signified is union with Christ, forgiveness of sins, sanctification. Now, there are two errors to avoid with this. On the one hand, Roman Catholic theology, for example, collapses these two things together, and says, well, you know, it's the water. The water is the, is the thing that, that actually unites you to Christ. On the other hand, the other error, which is probably more common, is to completely separate those things. And say they have nothing to do with each other. That water baptism is its own thing, and spirit baptism is another thing, and they're totally separate. But the Reformed view, and I, I believe, as a Reformed person, I believe this is the biblical view, is that the sign of the thing, the water and the Spirit, are two parts to make up a single whole. And 1 Peter 3, I think, bears that out. So let's, let's look at what this text says. First, you'll notice that Peter is talking about water. Now, some people, people that separate those things, look at this passage as dealing with baptism in the Spirit exclusively. But notice what's going on. Peter has just described the wettest event in human history. There's never been more water than there was during the Flood. And so he's drawing a direct connection between this flood and baptism just as the ark is brought through water so we are brought through the waters of baptism. But he qualifies the statement. First he says that baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body. Now I think it's pretty obvious to everyone that baptism is not a bath. If you've ever seen a baptism you'll know that you don't come out on the other side physically clean. Even in the first century uh, most baptisms would have probably been by uh, pouring. And you don't come out clean on the other side of that. You, you may not even get completely wet. So I, I think that's obvious. I think that's obvious to Peter's readers. And so we have to ask, what is Peter really getting at here? Well, one is that surely baptism is not purely physical. And I think that's, that's part of what's going on. But two is that the simple outward act of baptism does not remove sin. This is this is a direct uh, contradiction to direct denial of this error of combining the two things. So, what does baptism do? How does it save? Well, look at the next phrase. It says, "As an appeal to God for a good conscience." That word is "appeal." Is interesting. It's the only time in the Bible it appears. It's hard to translate. But what it's talking about is something like a legal claim, something like a deed. Baptism gives us a legal claim, a covenant claim, to a pure conscience before God. And how do we get that pure conscience? What does he say? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, back up, let's talk about our check analogy one more time. Think of it this way. In baptism, we are promised forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, a new life in Christ. It's it's as if God has written a check for redemption and given it to us in baptism. But we also have to cash that check. That check on its own doesn't do anything. We have to take it to the bank. And how do we do that? We do that by faith. Now, some people cash that check right when they get it. Others hold on to it for years and don't do anything with it. And so here's here's our summary. In baptism, God gives us a promise of redemption, which we must trust in faith. In other words... Baptism saves you in the very exact same way that the Word saves you, through a promise offered that you have to trust by faith. And just as some people receive the Word, hear the Word and receive it and trust it immediately, while others don't, some people immediately receive the promises of baptism with joy, while others struggle for a time. And either way, the promise still stands, the check is still written, and we're still called to receive it. Big theology there, and so here's what this has to do with you. If you have been baptized, your duty, your call, is to receive the promises that God makes to you by faith. That's the beauty of baptism. In a unique way, in baptism, God makes promises to you. To to you. The waters of baptism are poured on your head. It's not just a general promise of forgiveness to whoever believes, although that's certainly real. There's a real general promise of forgiveness to whoever believes. But in baptism, it's a promise of forgiveness to you, if you believe. So whenever you doubt God's love for you, whether you're good enough for Him, you don't have to look to the strength of your own faith, you don't have to look in your own heart. What you do is you look to the promises of God. You can look to the promise that God made to you in baptism. Where he says, if you believe, I will save you. And you trust that promise. You don't have to rely on something in yourself. Instead, your baptism gives you an appeal. A legal claim before God for a good conscience. The larger catechism summarizes this well, and I just want to read this to you. Question 167 of the larger catechism. How do we continue to use our baptism? We have a necessary but frequently neglected obligation to use our baptism our whole lives, particularly in times of temptation and when we are present at the baptism of others. We should seriously and thankfully reflect on what is involved in baptism, why Christ established it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by it, and the significance of our own solemn vows when we were baptized. This reflection humbles us when we recognize how defiled we are by sin and how far short we fall of living up to and indeed walk so contrary to the standards set by the grace of baptism and by our other spiritual commitments. We are also assured of pardon from sin and of all the other blessings sealed in that sacrament. We draw strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we were baptized in order to keep killing our sins and becoming alive by his grace. We are also spurred on To try to live by faith. To have our human relationships defined by holiness and righteousness as is proper to those who have given up their names to Christ. And to walk with each other in brotherly love as is proper to those baptized by the same Spirit into one baptism. In short, baptism is a gift of God. In it, God promises us redemption, and through it, God sanctifies us. In baptism, God descends to us and claims us and calls us His own. And our call is to rejoice in that great gift and receive it by faith. So do you want to meet God? Do you want to enter into His presence holy, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you want to be re- resurrected one day, to rejoice with your triune God with other believers? He offers you that opportunity. He promises you redemption. He promises you hope. But if you want to be blessed, you need to come to him on his terms. You need to come to God on God's terms. He calls you into his church, where his word is proclaimed, where his sacraments are administered. And if you do that, he promises to bless you with a redemption that is sealed for eternity and delivered. Once again, Exodus 20. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So come into God's house. Come to the place where he promises to bless you and receive those blessings and those promises by faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.